Hey everyone, welcome to the State of Demand Gen podcast where we're going to mash together all the different content types, events, interviews, Demand Gen Live, when I'm a guest on a podcast, LinkedIn content, all here in audio format. If you haven't already, I would highly encourage you to sign up for the Demand Gen Live sessions that I'm putting together with Gatano Denardi at 7.30 p.m., 4.30 Pacific on Tuesday evenings. Tons of great content in there, lots of great insights, live Q&A, building a little community inside there. I'd highly encourage you to check it out. And now to this episode. Yeah, so you worked through that. I actually got something like interesting that I'll kind of talk through while you pull that up. Cool, go for it. Gives you some, some, idea, some ideas. I was thinking about, um, uh, sometimes like when I have some free time in the afternoon, I'm thinking about different ideas about topics that either like I'm seeing in the feed or things that I want to dive deeper on. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking about, which is like super, super basic, but I think a lot of people overlook is like when you're thinking about putting out a piece of content for your business, like one of the first steps I think people overlook is think about what are you trying to accomplish? Like step one, who is the audience? Step two, what am I trying to accomplish? And I think when most people think about content, it's always just, I want people to get a demo. I want people to somehow do a sales conversion, not thinking through the steps on the way to getting there. And so like when I think about launching a campaign on Facebook, like some of the things that I might think about are what do I want to accomplish? I want people to know that this clinical trial came out that showed that our product has less side effects than our competitor. Like, and if people understand that, then I have accomplished my goal. Or I want people to know about that this company used our product and got this result. And therefore, they might be able to get this result too. And if they understand that with the communication that I just did, then I have been successful. And so if you start breaking down your communication campaigns to little bits of steps, little pieces of information, over time as that builds, you start dropping you start building up a lot of different components of a, of a knowledge that you want someone to have. And then over time, they are, I think the interesting thing that I think about is when, when people feel like they have more knowledge, they feel empowered to make their own choices instead of you trying to force them to make the choice you want them to make. I think it's just from a psychological standpoint, I find it super interesting. Um, and so that, that's something that I've been thinking a lot about. I think you could maybe, t- maybe it was too heady. Um, and maybe I haven't fully thought through it, but that's something that I've been thinking about a lot, trying to articulate the way that I think about like running a case study campaign or why it makes sense to spend $3,000 on a Facebook ad that talks about a statistic that has nothing to do with our product directly, because I'm trying to add a little piece of information. So, um, when I have like, for instance, you have a market, let's say it's 50,000 people. Like over time, if you have that defined market and you continuously have communications and use paid to guarantee delivery of that information over time, you can quickly build a story around the reasons why. Um, so I, I don't know if that was helpful, but that was something that I've been thinking about. I'll try and like reformat and put that into a post later this week. Did that give you enough time, G? Yeah. Yeah. It did. <laughs> I, and I appreciate that thought. I mean, it's basically, you know, old school versus new school thinking at the end of the day, it's, the, it's getting out of the mentality of drive ads to a white paper, download, follow up with SDR cadence. You know, it's getting out of, it's getting out of that mindset is basically what you're getting at with, yeah. with that. Um, cool. 
So everybody, I will uh, share my screen at this point and take you through a post that got a lot of engagement. And actually, it, it's a nice way to uh, bring to life what Chris um, is talking about here, actually. So basically, um, I would like to shout out a SaaS company that is breaking all the rules, going completely against traditional wisdom and crushing it. That company is SEO Software Ahrefs. Um, they are based out of Singapore. Their actual their CEO actually messaged me after this and thanked me for shouting them out, uh, which was cool. But essentially, here's their here's their whole uh, deal: um, no investments. They're 100% bootstrapped. No marketing automation. And uh, and by the way, it was quite hilarious in this thread of comments. A lot of the as I would consider them old school marketers or traditionalists or purists, they were really challenging me hard on no marketing automation, which I think we should talk about because. Um, you know, they don't need marketing automation. Actually, I get their emails and I see why it works. And we can talk about that a little bit more, mm. but I'll keep going through this. No SDR cadences, no nurtures, uh, no traditional PR, no buying leads, no buying lists, um, no paid ads, no ABM, no outbound. Um, so, so how do they get the leads then? Right. Everyone's like, wait, none of this stuff. How do they actually get leads? Well, demand generation, organic demand, and they go full out attack in these organic channels, uh, SEO, content marketing, video, YouTube, brand marketing, organic social media, landing page optimization, referral marketing, guest posting, getting interviewed on podcasts, right? These are all things that cost zero money, um, in terms of actual spend, but they cost, um, time and sweat. So sweat equity is a big portion of this uh, as well. And, you know, then I cap this off by saying this strategy is actually not possible for all companies. So if you're selling $40,000 deals around the average cost of your product, this is going to be really hard, but there are a lot of things you can take away from this that are still relevant and applicable to a company that is selling large deals. So with that being said, I think I'll pause, allow some reaction from you, Chris, and we'll kind of dissect this. I have some particularly interesting ideas to share around these two points right here, no buying lists and no buying leads. Uh, I would like to get into that more on my side, but um, I'll, pa I'll pause, pass the mic to you, allow for some reaction and commentary, and then maybe we'll get some commentary and reaction from around the room. So the place that I would start to focus is why wouldn't this work for a company just because their deal size is more than 40 K. And so I think it's really interesting, like for companies that have an over a hundred K ACV, they believe that they must go outbound for whatever reason. Um, and I believe that that, um, that the approach that was just laid out here could work at any place, any company that has a ACV that's greater than a hundred K. Um, they just need to change their mindset around it. Um, like we, we haven't done any of these things like at, for my company. Um, and our deal size range from 120 K to over a quarter million dollar ACV. And it's 100% inbound. And so like, I, I believe that it's possible. I think that people just need to change their thinking around it. And so I, I would like Katano to kind of like debate that idea. Yes. It's probably not going to be self-serve at a 40 K ACV, but could you have 90% inbound at a hundred K CV product? I believe so. 
That's a great one to start off with. Um, so I think w- the one thing that came to mind for me as you were talking that out was speed, <laughs> right? Like speed and then also like the investment portion, right? So the, you guys know that the traditional SaaS model says, I got to get a lot of investment up front so that I can have quote unquote hyper growth or explosive growth, whatever the fuck that means. Um, and with, with Chris's company, he, he didn't take investments as far as I know, maybe Chris, you can comment on that. He didn't. Right. So, so there was much more incentive to grow organically to grow at a pace that makes sense for the business long-term and not just, we got to get to the next round. Right. Um, so that is a huge part of it as well. Um, but yeah, there is this sort of like plague thinking this stigma in thinking that, okay, if we're selling huge deals, um, fuck inbound, fuck brand. We just got to go hardcore gorilla style outbound marketing and we need a huge SDR machine. And we need to, um, just go all out in cold. We need a cold calling machine. We need to do minimum hundred cold calls a day. Um, we need, you know, 97 point touch cadences and outreach and mm-hmm. go, 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 go. Um, and I think it, you're right, Chris, it is a mindset shift and, you know, uh, I'll pause there and allow for some more reaction. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's super interesting if you like really break it down. Right. So if you have the outbound model, um, I believe over time that it it will be more expensive than doing the inbound model. Like we've gotten well over a million dollar ARR and it's pretty much just me marketing with some people filling the funnel and we've done that in less than a year. Um, and so like, I think that companies should try and learn from that because I think the co- like content marketing, if you do it right, yes, you may not get the meeting on day two that you would have with an SDR, but that sales cycle is going to be 300 days for hundred K ACV product that you got cold outbound. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have too much more on this topic. I feel like it's just kind of like debating like the, the approach that those companies choose to take. So I, I know that you're eating, so I'll kind of like let you finish, but, um, I'll let you go into the buying leads in the list. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the part, I mean, to, to cap off on that one thing, really what it comes down to also is like skill gap, right? Chris, like mm. you are, <clears throat> that that's, I think what we're, we're peeling the onion here and getting down to this core layer, but like, you are somebody that really knows inbound, really knows social, really knows brand, right? Uh, myself as well. You go to these companies and like, they don't know it, mm. right? Like they, what they, they, like they go to like the VCs and say, who's the best VP of sales? You know, Oh, I got this guy or this girl that scaled whatever company from zero to, you know, 50 mil, blah, blah, blah. And those are all outbound practitioners Mm. and outbound scientists, right? So they just try to basically repeat the playbook that, (laughs) that worked in, Uh you know, 2008 Mm -hmm. to to today. And, um, that, that's why I see, I think you're seeing a lot of that. So let's get into buying leads and buying lists. (laughs) A great Mm -hmm. topic here. So here's the deal guys, companies who sell leads, like, and I'm not talking about like software advice, Captera, G2. Those are actually pretty legit, but I'm Content talking about syndication. Like, yeah, exactly. Like the affiliates that claim they have the most engaged email list on the planet in your industry or competitor X did 
content syndication on our website and had an incredible ROI and all this stuff and like these sponsorship packages for sponsored webinars and Hey, we'll hit our email list. We'll, we'll do an email blast for 5k and, uh, all this, all this stuff. We'll do a webinar for 15k and all this shit. Um, these companies are the biggest scammers in the world. Okay. Uh, very, <laughs> very, 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 very rarely do you have a company that actually delivers on their word when it comes to this stuff? And, you know, tragically I have come into companies that have asked me for their advice and for help with demand gen. And very frequently I'll say, Hey, you know, uh, very frequently I'll see, um, the, the CEO or CRO say to me, Hey, you know, our VP of demand gen who was here before, um, agreed to this $250,000 package with company XYZ, Mm -hmm can you look at this and tell me what this shit means? And I'll look at it and I'll be like, Oh my God. Yeah. No, you seriously. Guys, I'll you go in to the cleaners. I'll go in. And so Please. for anyone that, for anyone that doesn't know, I'll just break it down a little bit more. Like there are these places that the most common one for SaaS is a thing called content syndication, where basically like you pay a company and then they put your content on their website co-branded and then they deliver you leads either as a full fixed fee price of like 10K all the way up to high or at a cost per lead basis that they give to you. Um, and either way, I'll go in and audit companies. These are companies that are doing spending $250,000 on stuff like this, $30 million company, for instance. And they'll have all the leads for, for $50. So you can count how many leads they'll have and they'll close one deal off of it. It's really, and this isn't like a one-off analysis, like across the board, this is stuff that I'm seeing that continues to happen because people do not look at this at an individual level, especially when companies are at size. Um, and so, yeah, I, I couldn't push you harder, like more so than trade show booths, syndication sucks. Like keep going to your trade shows if you, just, if you have to choose between those two. Syndication is a, more of a waste of money than trade show booths. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, the final point on this is that think of, if I think about the companies who fall into these scams and fall into these traps on the marketing side, it's typically companies who have done outbound and ignored brand and top funnel the whole way. So now out of nowhere, they're really, they're, they're realizing, ah, we don't have much. So we need to just start outsourcing a bunch of shit and they become ripe for getting taken advantage of by these companies. And it's disgusting at um, how bad these companies are just out there robbing you blind um, because people don't know any better and they can't read through the lines. So I guess I'll, I guess I'll leave it off at that and we can get into the next subject, but just wanted to bring this up as a, as a kickoff for, for today, guys. Yeah, that's great. And I have a completely different angle that might be interesting and applicable to some. Um, so again, if you got, we have a couple of questions coming in. If you have questions, feel free to answer them or sorry, feel free to ask them and we'll get to them just after this topic, but I have a good one. So, um, I think we'll be aligned here, but it'd be interesting to just talk through it. So let's pretend that you have a, a new software company. Um, it's at 200 K ARR. You have, um, the founders doing most of the selling, but recently they brought on three junior account executives to run full cycle. Okay. Full cycle for those that don't know is you do your prospecting and your closing together, not an SDR and naive split model. Okay. So they're, they're full funnel AEs, no demand gen and no marketing employees yet. You're outsourcing a little bit of content. Um, your runway is 
pretty limited, like you can't raise money yet. Okay. And then the three reps, you've had them for four months and it's not working. Okay. So, and you can't raise money until you get to a million. Let's pretend. So you got to get from 200 K ARR to a million on a limited budget. So let's say like you can't add any more expenses. You just got to have to switch out what you got right now or do something different. How would you approach it? Yeah. Good one. So how expensive is the product that they're selling? Do you know? Just pretend it's a 20 K ACV. So for those that don't know, ACV stands for annual contract value or average contract value. Um, essentially the annual price of the, the average deal that you sell. Yeah. I mean, the first place I would look is where have the best customers that I already have come from? Um, right. What did it take to acquire those? What sources did they come from? How expensive was it to acquire those? And let's try to replicate that process, right? Because that's always the first source of gold is what's already working. Um, so if they, so we should establish that and, and, mm-hmm. and, um, it is, maybe I'll pause um, there. Yeah. Uh, so I'll give you a little breadcrumbs along the way. So, cool. um, they got to the 200 K mainly through the founder doing networking within the industry. Was it events? Was it Just his people, own personal people network? That he knows. Yeah. Personal network. So, all right. So it sounds like referrals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for one, um, are you saying that maybe that founder's list of contacts has dried up? seems like it. Yeah. All right. So the first thing I would probably do is incentivize every customer to make a referral. That, that would probably be the first thing that I would do. Um, the second thing that I would do is figure out like, um, is there some kind of dis- like, what is the profile of those, of those high paying customers or customers that have been around the longest? Right. And is there a disconnect between the messaging Right. Cause it can't like, maybe it's the approach, maybe it's the tactic, but really what it comes down to is like, it, it did, did they, it, are the sales uh, reps going after the wrong kinds of people? Are they messaging them with the wrong kinds of things? Are they hitting them in the forums that don't make sense? Right. Like for SEO buyers, for example, that buy expensive enterprise softwares, um, most SEO nerds are hang out on Twitter. Right. Um, so I'm just pointing that out because maybe all your, maybe your audience is hardcore nerd on Twitter or some kind of forum like Cora or Spiceworks, right. For it buyers or whatever. And you're just cold calling like an animal. Um, and you're not getting any traction with cold calling. Um, so I'm thinking about tactics, channel alignment. I'm thinking about messaging to channel alignment that is potentially breaking. Um, these are just some things that are kind of going through my mind. And, and one thing too, is like, are all the same reps trying the same things? Is there a lot of overlap? Is is there any kind of sign of hope that one rep is finding works and and the rest of them aren't doing like, are they all flat feeling on their face? Cause then you got to wonder, is it like product market fit somehow? Like is the founder's friend network just that strong that they, like, what is it? Like mm-hmm. you got to get to the bottom of it. So these are just the things that are spinning in my head as I'm listening to you, but let's, yeah. let's unpack it more. Yeah. I mean, the th- couple of things that I'm thinking about is, yeah, I think we need to get to the answer about whether or not the sales channel works in my view at 200 K ARR, it's too early to have three A's. 
like, I think it's too early. I think you need to take those dollars, remove at least two of those people, and then go and redeploy that capital if you don't have anything else to get to a million so you can go and raise money. Um, so let's just pretend, let's play out that the sales model isn't working. I don't have all the details, but let's just pretend that. So I would take your highest performing person. I would keep them. The other two people, I would have to let them go. I would take a little bit of the money that you save from the account executives. Let's just pretend you're paying them 100 grand a year so you recover 200K. I would find someone that is um, recently out of college that studied video or some type of creative. I would hire them for 50K. And then I would, um, I would, as the founder, start producing video, podcast, or whatever for LinkedIn, YouTube, and things. And then I would, that, that content would then become part of the cadence that the one account executive is sending. And then I would slowly try and build organic until I get to a level where I have some amount of demand and awareness about what I'm doing. And then once I have a repeatable flow and a repeatable sales process, I would continue to replicate that. But I think that you should be able to, as a founder, get to a million ARR either by yourself or with one, with one sales rep. Yeah, I agree with that completely. If I was that founder and I had such a great network, literally what I would do is start a podcast, interview all my friends, start repurposing all that content. And then I would build, yeah, I see Matthew like, yes, yeah. uh, duh. Right. Like I would then go. And once I get like, you know, 20, 30 episodes humming, I would start inviting every single ICP person mm -hmm. that is in my industry to be a guest on that podcast and using that as an opportunity to potentially even just get some product feedback. Like don't even say, Hey, can we engage you in a sales conversation? Can I say, Hey, by the way, Mr. and Mrs. You know, ICP. I know that you are an influential person in this space. I know that you at least have some um, decision-making influence in buying these types of softwares at your company. And we're kind of, we're kind of trying to figure out like, you know, how can we improve? How can we get better? Would it be possible to get maybe 10 minutes of feedback from you in terms of our approach to go to market uh, potentially our feature sets, our, our core differentiators, like it would just be 10 minutes. Um, and it, it would mean the world to me if, if you would be willing to lend 10 minutes, um, to, to myself and my team. Right. And then just start uncovering the layer there. And then, you know, using that as a way to kind of break the ice and, and have some real meaningful combos happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The one thing that I've found just to add on that point about somehow being able to ask for feedback, the best thing that I've found is, demonstrate that their expertise is helpful to you. So really make them the expert and pretend that you're the dummy and you really want to learn. Um, it makes people way more open. People love to share the things that they know and what they're good at. And so just make them feel like that. Um, not that, not to be disingenuous, not that way, but like when you have, when you position what you're trying to accomplish in that way, people are much more open to helping you. Agreed. Likeability is certainly a factor in this. And, um, you know, I shared an example today of a, a rep from a company called Chili Piper that, um, obviously wants to sell me something, <laughs> right? Let's not, let's not forget about that. But in the way that they went about just staying top of mind, making deposits, as we always talk about, um, they did a really good job and, uh, <clears throat> I'll actually put the link. Um, I shouted this person out today and shared the exact template that this person used to create a deposit. Maybe I'll just share my screen and we'll just look at it real quick. What do you All say, right. Chris? Yeah, go ahead. And we got a couple questions here that I got my eye on too. 
Okay, perfect. So we'll do this, then we'll go to the questions. Um, yeah, so sharing my screen right now, guys, and uh, you should be able to see this. All right, so this goes back to um, a couple of things. Uh, one is, <clears throat> you know, no marketing automation, right? Especially now during COVID, you, the last thing you want to do is put people into a, you know, 10 point outreach cadence, right? So this is what he said. He said, uh, no gift cards or sales pitch here. Cause he knows I'm how he reads my shit, obviously. <clears throat> so he's saying, I wanted to continue to say thanks for posting great content on LinkedIn. I always love to hear your advice and hot takes and truly appreciate the genuine and open post regarding your brother's battle with COVID. I'm also glad to hear he's doing better. So yeah, full disclosure for everybody. My, my youngest brother, was very, very sick with coronavirus. Um, and he's recently doing better. He's recovering. So he's looking good. So thank God for that. But I posted about it. This guy saw that, right? So empathy, he's reading my shit. He gets it. Um, then he's going the other week. I even saw your post about the roll up the sleeves mindset, getting in the trenches. You mentioned your CEO. Um, I never, I, I believe this has been really important, uh, especially in a situation like this. Then he's talking to me about some stuff in his life. Uh, he got promoted to SDR manager as a result of my advice. So he's trying to make me feel good about that. Um, that's kind of a stretch, but you know, I respect it. Um, and he's sharing a GIF or a GIF, whatever, um, about how that product works on our, how it would look working on our website. When someone completes a form, it would take them right to a, a calendar invite to connect with sales. <laughs> Um, and then the bottom was, um, this is inspiring for me. Hope next Tiva as well. I, I look forward to grabbing a beer or coffee with you sometime in the future when travel is a thing again, until then take care. So <clears throat> the point guys that I want to make with this is he did something really unique. He went so out of his way to research me and to be personal that it made me want to respond it may, it would actually have made, it would actually um, make me feel bad if I wouldn't respond to that, <clears throat> like not responding to that would actually make me feel bad. So that's the takeaway I think is like for your sales teams, their outreach has to be so good that if your prospects ignore them, it'll make them feel bad. How can you get to that point? How can you get, you know, to, to, to that level of detail and, 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 uh, personalizing and, and just, just, just realness in your cold emails and cold approaches, um, that would make someone feel bad by not responding. And that's, that's what I'll leave it off at. Right on. So we are going to jump into questions. The first question tonight is from Matthew. I'm going to unmute you if I can. Let's hear it, Matthew. All right. Thanks. I appreciate all the guidance you guys are putting out. I really do. Um, my first question, Chris, I know you've got some experience on the healthcare side of the house is, and, and I know that this is industry specific, but I'm uncertain whether medical technology or medical device companies, I am certain that they suck when it comes to inbound marketing and, and having that approach. I'm certain of that. I'm just uncertain if it's too much of a paradigm shift to offer them inbound services. And um, that's my question, mm -hmm. your thoughts. I can answer this for you very simply because I've done it myself. When I started this company, 
I thought that medical device companies were going to be my client. And because I already had a success story and took a company from zero, a hundred percent outbound and got them 33% of their revenue at a pretty significant several million dollars in inbound revenue in 12 months and had a great success story about it. I don't think anybody wants what we're selling right now. I think that there needs to be more demand in that industry to sell the stuff that we're trying to sell. So I, um, you can either be early and have it be difficult to get clients up front, or you can wait for them to be ready. Right. And then part B of, the, B of that question, Chris, is, uh, and also for you, G, is any great examples of, say, content marketing or brand awareness in making them a scalable and profitable agency offering? Um, could you ask that a different way? I'm not sure I understand. Yeah. Um, is there a profitable model for agencies to offer up content marketing or um, brand awareness that leads to demand gen? Is it scalable and is it profitable? And if so, do you have any models? Mm -hmm. I have a very, maybe it's unique. I I haven't heard a lot of people have this position that I have, um, which is that like when I think about offerings for clients, I think about it as if I was them. And if I was them, if I was the VP of marketing that was looking for content writing outsourced, um, what I would want someone to tell me is that you need to figure out how to do this in house because you need to be the expert and you guys have the knowledge and you know, the product and you know, the market and you knew all these things. And if you want to be successful in five years, you need to figure out how to write your own content and produce it. And so for all of those reasons, that's why my company does not write content or try and produce it. We just help companies figure out how to do it themselves. Um, so is there a scalable way to do it? Yes. Um, I, I believe that there is, um, the way that I've found is to just help people figure out how to do it themselves. And so maybe, like maybe, maybe there's something in there, like, um, a scalable way might be the thousand dollar course for how medical device companies could do that. There's a lot of different iterations to accomplish that goal other than you actually doing it for them. Gee, really interested in your opinion on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Matthew, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think back to like how I, so I've, I've bought, um, services from companies who create content marketing, um, for, for tech companies and stuff. And I'll tell you about them. Uh, so one company positioned themselves as this, um, our content is, is very specifically this thing. This is the content that we specialize in, um, content that is meant to rank in search engines and it's long tail informational content that um, is all oriented around the target keyword. So let's say, um, I don't know, I'm just going to throw a thing out there. Like, let's say your company really wants to rank for terms like customer service strategies. Then that agency would produce a guide on customer service strategies that is meant to rank and, um, and, and get organic traffic. So they specialized in that specific kind of content and they crafted their offering, uh, tailored to, um, people like me 
who would want that service because they know I care a lot about building organic traffic, building organic presence, building backlinks. Right. Um, so they didn't position themselves as content marketing agency that does case studies that does this, that does that. They said, we specialize in this and, um, that can work. That can certainly work. I also know other agencies that say we, our specialty is case studies. Like we have a process. We are the experts. They brand themselves as the best at producing B2B case studies. And they go very niche in that lane. They show, um, they, they basically market themselves to B2B companies who need that service and they stay there. Um, so <clears throat> I will leave it off at that. Whereas, uh, in, in terms of scale, I, that's tough. That's a scary word, <laughs> a word I don't really like. Um, I don't know, but I guess what I'll leave it off is me as a buyer who has bought these services. Um, and you guys know me, I wouldn't buy something that's not like legit and something I didn't believe in. Um, I bought services that were very specialized because um, of two things. One, I trusted in their expertise in, in this area of subject matter of producing this style content. And two, um, because my team can already produce this, but I just wanted to move faster. I decided to add more firepower to this area because we needed more volume. Yeah. Well, let me uh, clarify a couple of points. I, I do think that you can outsource SEO content. I do believe that you can do that. Um, and if you wanted to get a case study done, I think that there's probably a partner to help you. I think that the, the place where it breaks for me is that my belief is that you need to be creating content in volume in order for it to be successful on platforms like social. And when you, when you start to get to that level of volume, it becomes prohibitively expensive to outsource. And so therefore that is, that's to clarify my reasoning as to why I, pref I suggest people build it in house. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that guys. You got it. Great question. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Let's keep on trucking. You want me to ask the question? Yeah, please. Um, you know, I, I see all these companies doing content marketing and I see it all over the place, but the content is generally no good. I mean, to me, it looks like, I mean, why don't you, in some cases it can't happen, but in most cases, why not just go talk to the customers, write a story mm -hmm. about them and talk about what your, your product worked for them and how it worked and they promote it to their friends and it gets around and they use it as a case study and blah, blah, blah. It just goes on and on and on. And there's, that's an endless supply of content. And I, I don't understand why nobody uses it. When I go to these SEO meetings and all they want to talk about is keywords and links, and I'm so far ahead of them, I can't even, you know, like, so how come nobody's doing this? Mm -hmm. Let's break that down. <laughs> you want to start G? I mean, yeah, it's a great, yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> it's a great observation and, um, yeah, so let me peel this back a little bit. Um, it's a lot easier to produce SEO content. <laughs> Right. Top of funnel SEO content is very easy to produce. I can rank for any top of funnel keyword, depending on difficulty by the end of the month. You know, I'll give you a perfect example. Nextiva ranks for telecommute telecommuting technology. We produced this, this car, this uh, content, uh, just maybe less than a month ago. And because it's really good, we have a strong domain. It's automatically number one. Boom. Right. 
um, we didn't have to talk to anyone. We just said, we're the experts in that field. We do our own research. It's easy. We can get it out. We, we know top funnel is important right now. We can use, you know, uh, internal linking calls to action to get that top of funnel traffic to do more things than just show up and leave. What George is talking about is a very laborious process with a lot of complexities to it. Is the customer in good standing? Are they happy with everything? Um, are they willing to uh, <clears throat> speak with the brand and talk positively? You got to jump through hoops. You got to get them on the phone. <clears throat> you got to interview them. Talk with legal gotta, if it's a bigger company. Talk with legal. Yeah, you got to coordinate with the account manager who sold them the deal. You might get on the phone with them and then they say, you know what? I'm actually unhappy about a ton of shit. Oh, you guys, oh, now, now is, I got to transfer this to support. And I got to resolve all their unhappiness before I can get them to do what I want them to do, which is talk positively about the brand, right? Um, and then the other problem with case studies too is that, think about this, right? Like Rolls Royce is a Nextiva customer. It's going to be really hard to get somebody senior level from Rolls Royce to endorse us on video, in a tweet, whatever, because they don't want to do that. They don't like doing that. Um, so it's less believable actually, because guess what people like me believe when I see a case study? Yeah, it's bullshit. Yeah. Some marketer made it all up. It's not, it's not legit. I don't see a video from the person from that company actually saying anything real about it. I don't see any tweets. I don't see any written reviews from this person on G2 or Gardner or whatever. Yeah. I just don't care. So, um, the, the amount of effort it takes to produce a really high quality case study is tremendously more effort than just, Hey, we want to build some top of funnel SEO content, but the reward is also much, much higher much higher. Like if a well-produced bang up case study, it could take more than a month to get right. Maybe two months. It could take a long time, but then they got to approve it on their legal side. Like that Rolls Royce person's got to say, Hey, legal team, are you cool with me saying this? And, and then to get really specific, we're, we're going to want to know things like how much benefit in terms of numerical value have you gotten as a result of using our product? How much more pipeline, how much more product uh, productivity, how much more efficiency, where did you go from starting where to now where, right? And they don't want to give those numbers up. They don't want to say, yeah, as a result of using, you know, refined labs by Chris Walker, we, we got, you know, 70% more uh, bookings and improved SDR performance by blah, blah, blah. Like they may not want to say all that stuff. So all that needs to get clearance as well by their legal team. And it's just a lot of legwork. And because it's a lot of legwork companies, you know, they shy away from it. They don't want to do it. So that was a long winded answer. But for me being at a large company and that's what it go, that w that's what we go through. That's my explanation. Um, and Chris, I'll let you build on it. Yeah. I mean, aside from the case study being hard, like I think there are other avenues to create content with either your customers or even better with people that are not your customers that might be right. And so, um, I think in general, um, people don't do it because it's hard. And the second reason is because they're not incentivized to do some of these things from a metric standpoint, um, which is why, uh, the last thing is, which is why you see content so much that's not good 
is because they're not writing it for you to read it and enjoy it. They're writing it so that they either rank in SEO or so you fill out their form to get the ebook and then they can sell you something. And so if you are producing content, 100% mindset should be on how do I make an impact, a positive impact on the person who's reading it with no thought about how it makes it somewhere into a sales funnel. And because you think that way, you create content that's actually good, which then leads to people at some point recognizing you and moving into a sales funnel if they decide that your product is right for them. It goes back to what I said that before. If you provide information and you create awareness, then people are empowered to make their own choices. And then it comes down to, do you message your product well enough? Do you have the right ideal customer profile? Is it positioned appropriately? Is it priced appropriately? Are you in a market that you, that people, are you in a market or product that where people need something? And I think that is a a really interesting, uh, like kind of way to win. So, um, yeah, those are, those are kind of my thoughts. I'm a big fan of, of case studies, um, whether or not people, um, like I, Gitano has a different perspective than the CNC machinist um, that is reading some of the case studies that we might produce. Um, and so with those, like I said the, at the beginning, the objective of a case study is not necessarily to create leads. It is to, it is to deliver a specific part of messaging, which then you can build on, which over time may change someone's mind or illuminate their idea, their mind to a different way of doing things. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I'm feeling about that. We got a, uh, a question from Trent. Trent, uh, I see you asked this. It's kind of specific, but I think a lot of people would get value out of it. You mind, uh, you mind asking it? Sure. Um, so I have a client in the security space, physical security space, not cyber. And as a result of everything that's happening, they're repurposing a lot of their workforce. Um, specifically SDRs are moving into, um, demand generals and it's not every SDR. It's the SDRs that are a little bit more like marketing aware, i.e. the ones that can write their own sequences, um, that don't sound like total idiots, um, and have, you know, like some semblance of content production for their own LinkedIn profiles and that sort of thing. So, um, part of my job is to help them um, transition these individuals like, well, from what I would consider like a cold SDR function to something that's creating more, uh, demand within a very niche space and prospects that range from like literally a junkyard scrapper to, um, the chief security officer at Pfizer. Um, so I don't know if that's way too specific of a question or not, but it's uh, it's an interesting parallel. And I think uh, the repurposing of these roles is something that I could see taking momentum um, and hopefully something that will be more effective for uh, like revenue functions altogether. This is an awesome question. The, the end of the question I thought was most useful to people is where would you recommend these people go to ramp up their knowledge? Um, so the first like follow-up question I have on this, Trent, is yeah. when you say demand gen, is there activities, are there, are there activities already defined? Yeah. Like, yeah. They, they have one demand gen specialist who creates white papers, um, that live behind a gated landing page. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like that's, that's it. And then like the distribution for that is like maybe some paid stuff. If like, uh, if like, um, 
a regional retailer has like more than 20 locations, then like they'll run paid ads towards security mm-hmm. folks within that um, account per se. But like most of it is like content production, like very, very traditional content production um, versus like what, what I see like you and G doing. Mm-hmm. G, you want to take this? I got a couple ideas. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, there's so many thoughts going through my mind, uh, Trent, as you're saying yeah. this, man. So all right, I guess let's, let's try to break it all down. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of components to it. One component right. is like, how can an SDR move into demand gen, I guess is really like the main theme. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, it's yeah. So I think it, it, <laughs> I hate to give you this answer, but quote unquote, it depends because, you know, somebody like just a white paper factory, you know, they, you know, it's so tough. Like if you're a white paper factory assembly line productionist, I don't see how you, you can go from that to demand gen. Uh, I think that would be so hard. You're more of a content producer. You can might, you may be able to go more into like content marketing or product marketing, but like, I don't know. It just seems like just producing white papers over and over again. Um, for one, I don't agree with just having someone do that role. Like, I don't believe you should have one person that just nonstop makes white papers all day. Like with one white paper or maybe two, you should be able to focus like 90% after that on distribution and real marketing. Like that's when real marketing happens. Right? Yeah. Well, I think that might be the answer to the question then is yeah. it, it's distribution, right? And like right. how to repurpose that SDR instead of like sending the same 10 step sequence, right. repurposing their activity for distribution of what hopefully is something quality on the content side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the missing link right there. Boom. Yeah. So really the question comes down to how do you promote white papers outside of the annoying, stupid <laughs> 10 step, you know? Yeah. Uh, cadence. Um, and here's the answers. Um, just me rattling them off with, um, my experience. And then Chris, you can add to this and I, and I will refrain from saying paid ads cause that is the go-to move <clears throat> for everybody. Um, so here it is. One is, um, find high traffic pages on your website or relevant pages that are already getting a lot of traffic. And it could even be the homepage where you embed that content. And let me show you guys an example of this. Um, I'm going to share my screen. Yeah. Cool. And I'm going to go to uh, Nextiva to show you the example. So we came up with a really cool and exclusive research report called the 2020 state of business communication report. And we surveyed 1000 professionals, um, in collaboration with Polycom now known as Poly, and AAISP, the American association of inside sales professionals. And we found all sorts of cool statistics like, um, you know, by age range, what are businesses, uh, doing to communicate remotely? And we, and there's data in there that shows that, you know, VPs and C and, you know, C level folks hate video chat. Whereas the younger, the younger, um, age brackets love it. Um, and there's all sorts of 
cool stats in here that are completely unique that we researched, we surveyed the market and custom, our customer bases to get this information. Um, so we embedded it on the homepage because it's high value. It's exclusive. There's nothing else like it out there and it deserves prime time, uh, promo, right? So that's one way to get eyeballs and traction to an asset. Another way is to do guest posting on websites that have overlapping audiences that are credible and that, um, you want to bolster your position in terms of thought leadership on. Right. So we did, we, we're going on a guest posting kind of campaign now where we hit up companies like, um, HubSpot, close.com, um, Sandler, uh, sales training, right. Uh, all these sorts of companies that we have good connections with that have readers who might enjoy such an asset. And we're doing guest posting on those sites and, um, offering that downloadable guide as part of those, um, as part of those guest posts. Right. So that's one. Um, another is, um, just doing social videos, right? So, um, getting influential people to have side-by-side video chat style screen share, um, videos with myself and other people at our company to discuss like the unique trends that came out of that report. And we're doing videos on social media organic, um, to drive awareness to them and then asking people to check it out, um, that way, uh, forums as well. There's all sorts of places where you can drop links to your ebook and answers marketing and forum marketing like Quora, Spiceworks, things like that. Um, and I think that's it. I'll pause there. I don't want to ramble too much, but Chris, if you have any other ideas. Yeah, I'm going to answer this a little bit of a different way, which is like, uh, where would those people go to get a base of knowledge that then they might be able to use? Um, and so honestly, where I learned most of the stuff that I now implement on demand gen, I learned on YouTube. Like if you spend enough time on YouTube and listen to the right people, you will acquire knowledge, but 70% of actually learning something is doing it yourself. So you can only watch YouTube for a certain amount of time and then you actually have to go and do it and learn yourself. Um, so my suggestion would be to spend some time on YouTube or on a demand gen live session or something like this. I've invited them. They just haven't showed up yet. Yeah. The second step, which is kind of like just what you said is you got to figure out whether or not they actually want that to do that job. Cause if they don't want to do it, then they're not going to be successful. And so, uh, that's, those are a couple ideas about some things that, that I would think about. Um, and then I just wanted, there was something that when G was talking, I thought was really interesting. That's kind of unrelated, but I, I wanted to drop it in here, which is that one of the things for people that are a lot more advanced in demand gen to think about doing that I've, I've been doing for like four or five years now is that when I see something that works on me, I like super analyze why. And so like it happened to me most recently, like two days ago, and I do it a lot, especially on Instagram stories, because I'm really trying to figure out in B2B how to make Instagram stories work to a level that's so good because the CPMs are like three bucks right now. And LinkedIn CPMs are like 80. So if you get the picture, it's more than 20 times less expensive than a LinkedIn ad. How do we get it to work on Instagram? And so I like go through the stories and at some point, like there's something I swipe up. I don't care if they're trying to sell me a t-shirt or a hundred thousand dollar cybersecurity tool or what it got me to stop in my feed and swipe up and I'll back up. There's a little tool that you can use to record your screen 
and I'll record the ad and I'll take a video of that ad. And then I'll also swipe up again and I'll go and I'll take screenshots of the landing page. Cause then I'll look at the landing page and say, okay, like it got me to swipe up, but why didn't I convert? Like, what were they asking me to do? What information would I have needed? What? And so if you start to look at like your own behavior, you'll get interesting insights as to what you might be able to do differently for your own buyers. So I just gave you the Instagram story example, but if you go to YouTube and there's a pre-roll ad and there's like some scumbag trying to get you to buy a $5,000 course, like why didn't you do it? You know what I mean? Or uh, another thing that I, uh, a really interesting one that I've been thinking about recently and using it as an example is monday.com has been able to grow. They just raised like, I don't know, another like $150 million at a $2 billion valuation or something. They built their entire company on like flawless digital execution. I look at their YouTube pre-roll ads. They have 75 million views on some of their pre-roll ads that I was, I was seeing. And so I'm an Asana user to be transparent. Um, but the first time I ever ran into a challenge with Asana where there's a feature I didn't have, I didn't like ask a friend. I didn't, I went to Google and I searched monday.com. And then I went and I looked at the product. And so I think that's a really like, I use those types of insights and how I behave to try and translate it into how my marketing is going to make some of those things happen. None of that stuff is tracked. Like all the stuff for monday.com, none of that stuff is tracked. They don't, they, they, they don't know that that's how I got the journey. They didn't know that I ran into a, a pro, uh, an issue with a sauna. They didn't know that I anonymously searched their brand in Google. Um, but those are the insights that you need from a psychology standpoint to try and understand how you can help buyers do those types of things for whatever you're trying to accomplish. That's awesome. Thanks guys. This is kind of like, uh, get this question from Matai. It's kind of like the question we asked. Um, we answered a little bit earlier. We'll see if we can take it at a different angle or something like that. How would you start a marketing campaign for a bootstrap company that has zero customers and no marketing specialist and just got an MVP ready? I got an interesting approach on this one. Yeah, Chris, you, you, you take this one and then I'll add on to whatever you say. I'm curious yeah. to hear your idea. So this is a, a quite a different, unique approach, I think, but I, I think it's an interesting thing to at least consider is when you have zero customers and you have nothing and you have an MVP ready, the first thing that I would do is I would give it to 10 people for free. And I would get them into some type of beta program where they give you feedback and you learn. And then if your product actually delivers, then they're going to go and tell people about it and you're going to get some customers organically. Like, I think that is a super interesting way to go about it. So you win both ways. They like the product, they use it, and then they tell people about it. Like I use Shield. It's a tool for um, LinkedIn analytics. And all I, the only reason I found out it was in the comments of a LinkedIn thing from somebody else that was using it for free. And then I pay, and then I pay 30 bucks a month for it. So like, that's an interesting um, approach. So you win if it works and they, people tell their friends about the product that they're using that they like, and it's new. So they feel cutting edge or ahead of the times, or you win the other way, which is that they don't get value out of it. They say, I don't like this. And then you realize that your MVP is not really minimum viable. It's not viable. Um, that's the way that I would do it. Yeah. I mean, I don't have, I don't have much else to add than that. I mean, if you, it, I mean, if you're MVP product, um, and, and you're one of those copy products that you, you just copied, you know, another example of, a, of a proven model, 
Well, then you just kind of need to, like Chris said, you kind of just, you don't really need product market fit. You already know you have it. Um, you just need to basically just prove that it works and start gaining mindshare. Um, and an example of a company that did that was uh, Mailshake. You check out Mailshake from Sujin Patel. But, um, you know, he's, if you, you study that guy's marketing, cause he got that off the ground, bootstrapped organic. Right. Um, and he, I mean, he's a beast of a marketer. He knows his shit, but I mean, he didn't go into like a brand new industry that needed a ton of validation on the product side. I mean, it was pretty much proven. It was a copycat of many other products out there. He's just marketing it better. So, um, yeah, I don't have really much else to add than that. Cool. Next question. It was actually through an email from, forgive me if I pronounce this incorrectly, but, uh, Dasha, you want to ask it or I'll unmute you. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, first huge thanks for all the help. I just got a job about a month ago and honestly, if it wasn't for you guys, I've probably been already fired. Congratulations. I really appreciate that. So my question was, is how do you get customers to help you generate content? Um, how do you ask and when do you ask for testimonials that are not only annoying, but quantifiable? Um, you know, my audience is very technical. They love case studies and I'm about to first to write my first one. And I'm having an interview with this guy on Thursday. Um, and I'm a little terrified because I, you know, he, he accepted, which was already good surprise for me, but I just not sure that I'm going to ask the right questions. And I want them not to give me a one line answers, but tell them, uh, tell, have them tell me their story. Um, so any best practices or maybe tips and tricks on keeping the conversation going and actually getting to those gold nuggets that you can leverage. That's not just something just blah that everybody seems to give nowadays. For sure. Yeah. Congratulations Uh, on the job. First off. Congrats Um, for sure. And, uh, I'm curious, I'm curious who you sell to. Sorry. Um, my audience is mostly test managers, um, in semiconductor, aerospace defense, um, medical device industry. Um, so it's essentially they're testing either components of the system or the entire systems. And my company is the one that makes the software and hardware to make this testing possible. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. So, um, I think the place where I would start is, is to, to know that it's your first time doing it and just be okay with it and know that you're going to do the best you can. And over time it's going to get better. Like, I think that's the first place to start. Um, and then to get a little bit more tactical, I think a lot of people could get value out of this, um, for a lot of different reasons is there's a, there's a question framework that I use that helps people tell you the real story. Um, and that framework is called, I call it fact, opinion, feeling. And so you start with a question that talks about, that talks about a fact. So, you know, you've been using this product for in how long have you been using this product inside of your facility? Right. That's a fact. They can tell you the answer straight away. We've been using it for five years and then talk about a, um, opinion. And so why, why do you think that the company has continued to use this for five years? And then they have, then they share their opinion 
about why. So, okay, well, we, uh, before we were not doing anything and I had to go and use this digital multimeter and it was so annoying. And so this thing really helps me. It saves me a bunch of time and I, I love it. Oh, you love it. Like, so, um, then you, you get into the feeling part, which is like, okay, so like if this, uh, like if this wasn't here tomorrow, like how would you feel? And then you start to get the juicy type of information, but you have to take that process, which then allows people to open up. They feel more comfortable over time with that framework. I use it for upstream product market research, um, customer research, how to figure out messaging, um, how to talk to my employees about having difficult conversations. All those different ways can, can work. Um, so that, that's a model that I think might be helpful for you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Chris said. Usually my answer to this is uh, go talk to somebody at your company who does what the person you're selling to does. But you probably don't have anyone like that at your company. I mean, maybe you do. <laughs> I have the sales guy. They're supposed to know that stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, bouncing it around off of sales might might be a good starting point. And then another potential idea is to share the list of questions with the person you're interviewing in advance. Okay. That might be a good, good thing to try and just say, Hey, I just wanted to send you the questions, um, in advance to let you think about them and, and prepare what you might talk about. If anything seems way off, just please let me know if there's anything you don't want to answer, or if there's anything that just seems like it doesn't fit, just feel free to let me know and we'll skip that one. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, in, in order to respect your time and to make it a very efficient, 30 minute meeting or however long it is. Um, I wanted to give this to you in advance so that we can prepare and make it the best use of your time. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Great. Yeah. I always love when people send me questions in advance, whether it's a podcast interview or whatever. So that should work. Okay. Mm -hmm. I have another separate question. If you guys have Happy time to do later it. on, let's, let's really? do it right now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, being you in the company and just the background, they are bare bones. There's nothing. They got bought by another company out of Germany and um, they spend two years through stumbling through like a very, very messy merger and there's still a problem. Germany operates very separately from the company that I'm technically working for. So what I'm trying to do now is actually go out there and that's actually taken directly from Chris's tip of the day. Um, is go out and interview our customers and have them, you know, tell the stories like, you know, why did you choose us? What do you think? How would you tell about us to your peers or competitors? You know, so um, that's the reason why I'm doing all of this is because I'm trying to build out this customer personas and figuring out messaging. What are the questions in those kind of interview processes that you think are a must to ask? G, I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah. So the question is, when you're doing the customer interviews, what are the must-ask questions? Yeah. If your purpose of doing these interviews is to find out their carebouts, uh, find out what kind of messaging you should develop. And, you know, I'm starting to slowly get all mountains of research that I've done on the past month and try to build out customer personas for yeah. each individual industry. So, mm -hmm. you know, of course, like in the customer persona, you have your whole attributes and there's firmer graphics and there's the company size and individual cares, blah, 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 all that stuff. 
I'm looking for something that maybe I'm overlooking or the Mm -hmm. questions that you believe are kind of like, if you're trying to interview this person to figure out your positioning, messaging, and your customer personas, what are you cannot skip? Otherwise, you're just going to miss out. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So here's a couple. I would, uh, all right, here you go. So, Mm -hmm. uh, what's the name of your company? Uh, my company. Yeah. Conrad Technologies. Conair Technologies. Conrad. Conrad Conrad Technologies. Okay. Uh, okay. So question is, how would you describe Conrad Technologies to your grandma? (laughs) I love it. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. That's one. That's a good one that I always used. Um, Uh The other one is asking them, um, where do you consume content? Mm -hmm. That's big, right? Because that's, Mm -hmm. then you can start understanding where they, where do they go online to consume content? What do they read? So ask them, what do you read? Mm -hmm. What kinds of podcasts do you listen to? What kind of media do you consume? Um, And then ask them, what kind of content do you think is very valuable to this industry? Mm-hmm. And what kind of content do you feel is a waste of time? Um, what do you wish existed that doesn't? Right. I don't think I can write fast enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, this is recorded, Sorry, so you can come back. Okay, okay, okay. okay, okay, okay. <laughs> All right. I got yeah. it. I cut up. I cut up. Keep going. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then finally, what I would do if there's time is um, to show them a landing page and say, what do you think about this message? Right? Of like, our website? Of your website, yeah. Just real quick, just take them, um, share your screen, show them a landing page for a minute. Right? I do this I do this all the time, right? Like um, I'm going to share my screen real quick mm-hmm. and I'm going to show you something that I'm testing. Now, this is a very unusual way to get feedback, but it works. So... The, the value prop that I'm proposing here is um, an enterprise VoIP system that helps an IT manager sleep better, right? Or sleep better at night, right? And then under here, the subcopy is zero outages. So we're talking about our reliability as a, as a selling point, as a value prop. And then the social proof here with the, with the um, ratings, right? Mm-hmm. So the question is really about, does this value prop actually resonate with you mm-hmm. it, do you when, before you go to bed or like when you're signing off at of work do you worry about outages or do you worry about security breaches right is that always running in the back of your mind and if you saw that we had a lot of uh, credibility with our reliable systems 99 percent uptime we've never been hacked right when you if you see a value prop like this does it make you want to learn more does it increase confidence or you know, how, how do you feel when you see something like this? And I take them through the page for about a minute and we have like maybe a five minute discussion on some of the things here, but that is also a great way to go about doing it as well. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. For sure. I got a couple other things for you. Um, maybe a little bit more high level. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one place where, um, people make a mistake here is that they ask leading questions that help them get to the answers that they want. And so, um, a way to try and get away from that is to not ask yes or no questions. So instead of asking, um, do you think that like, is reliability important to you? Yes or no. Say, what are the things that are most important to you? 
and then let them decide. So it's almost like if you're doing a survey, as you start to tell, after you introduce reliability, it biases the rest of the survey. Um, so the, that's one thing to think about is how, how do you structure the question so that they're open-ended and not leading? Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I think, well, I got two other things. Um, my favorite two words in interviews are why and how as follow-up questions. And so people will give you an answer, but really I find that asking a couple of times why or how you actually get to the real answer. And then the last thing that I would offer, maybe not for this interview, but for the future, especially for people that are selling to people that are not like them. She's marketing to uh, test engineers or like I did this when I was um, marketing to neonatologists, people that take care of premature babies in an ICU setting is that I asked them if I could shadow them for a half a day. And I, I, I was in a uh, neonatal ICU at two in the morning and I saw what it was like. And when they changed the settings on my machine, I could ask, why did they do that? And then they could tell me, oh, the oxygen sat was low. I had to turn up the amount of ox FiO2. And then you start to get the real insights. Um, and so a lot of places, some settings like that's not feasible and some people aren't like, don't have the budget to travel. Um, but if you can, and there's someone that's open to it, I find it so, so useful for people that are doing like things like test engineer would be a great situation for something like that. Awesome. Thank you so much. You got it. Cool. I think hey, we Chris, got, I've got about five minutes. Yeah. Uh, I think we're, we're more. closing out now. We'll see if we can get one more. You got anything to close on? I don't think we have any more questions. Yeah, man. I would just say thank you everybody for coming back. Um, I, I still think back to the days of like when I first started marketing and I was horrible and like, you know, now there's people that tune in to, to hear, um, not just my ideas, but your ideas as well, Chris. And, and, uh, I thank you guys a lot. Um, I'm glad this is helpful and, um, you know, we'll, we'll keep it going for sure. So, just want to thank everybody for tuning back in. I, I don't know if you have anything else, Chris, but that's all I got. Yeah, for sure. Super, super grateful. Uh, we scheduled this for an hour and always we undoubtedly go over by a little while. So thank you for sticking with us. I know for some people like in Europe, the, the time isn't very convenient. So um, G and I will talk about that offline. We did one on a Thursday at noon. So maybe we'll think about slotting one of those in every once in a while for the European audience to make that, that work. Um, I think right now... Um, something that I, you all are clearly doing because you're here is it's a great time to skill up to like really think about what like what skill gap you might have or what place that you're already good at that you want to get great at and take some time to do that um or like uh, i'll shout out matthew right here like matthew started his own podcast i'm not sure when he did it um i'm not sure if, if what we're doing right now helped him get there um but he's like now off and running and learning something and doing And so once you feel like you have that base of knowledge of something you either learned here on a YouTube video or on a LinkedIn post or through a friend or through a colleague, like right now you have some time to go in out and get something done and, and, and be able to learn. And so, um, so yeah, I, uh, uh, I appreciate all of you joining and if I could just give you that little boost to, to, to go out and try something new, um, that's what I would, uh, that's what I'll leave it at. Awesome. Yeah. All right, y'all. Thank you very much for joining us. Hope to see you next week and have a great evening. Take care, everybody. Have a great week.